1: Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll maxi-series discussing Michelangelo Matos's book, The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Let It Roll is the insanely ambitious musical history podcast. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll Podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at Let It Roll Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Today Nate and Ryan follow Mato's to the West Coast to talk about the rise and fall of Indy Rave in Los Angeles in 1991 and 1992. Email us at podcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy.
0: It's time to let it roll. Or should I say techno roll? That's right. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, joined once again by Brian Harkness to continue our discussion of Michelangelo Matos's The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America. Today, we're on Chapter 7, Rave America, Los Angeles, California, December 31st, 1992. It's kind of a twin to the last chapter we did on the East Coast in the same year of Our Lord, 1991. And uh, this is kind of the rise and fall of the indie scene in los angeles ryan thoughts overall of the chapter
2: yeah i mean we had a a, a foray into the west coast a couple chapters or go, chapters ago and they they spent a lot of time in san francisco which was very utopian and, and fun and now we're really focusing on los angeles which uh is fun and crazy and then it gets intense and then it falls apart so it's a, it's a really fun uh examination of how everything was so hype in 1989 or 1988. And then by 1992, it was already like getting too big, exploding, imploding, and then falling apart.
0: Yeah. It's an interesting dynamic. And it's also interesting that there's something he keeps hearing from people. He interviews is that things were getting too mainstream. It didn't take much to set off the mainstream, uh, spidey sense for a lot of these kids. But first he talks about how a lot of the raves in this period, and this is very wild and woolly illegal raves, um, how a lot of these raves were in totally crazy places. Like Brian Bellendorf, the guy who started SF Raves, the the email list, and then you know, that expanded into all these national email lists. Uh, also, the inventor of Apache, the web server. He was at a hangar show at the Burbank Airport. They were literally dancing around the planes in the, in the hangar there. There was also things like Grape Ape, which was at a water slide park. That was August 1991. They had a Gilligan's Island rave, August 31st, 91, at, at a Catalina Island casino. Uh, there was one uh, in a Hollywood storage unit with a basement full of nitrous oxide. I, I don't know how they... Left all the nitrous in the basement, but probably best that
2: they did. Maybe they maybe they carted it in. That's also a possibility.
0: Entirely true. Although you know, stuff's explosive and expensive. Uh, it's usually carried around in whipped cream sized cans, not the big oxygen tanks. Oh
2: no, you you go to enough shows and you you start seeing the the big balloon tanks that are uh, the,
0: the dentist tanks.
2: Yeah, the big boys.
0: All right, and then uh, there was also a Native American reservations one near the Compton freeway. Uh, Got some coverage, because, of course, they're free from a lot of the state laws. And then deserts north of l a, the new moon gatherings in San Francisco are um, stretching out to to south l a. and And Matos's quote is l a teamed with competitive over the top promoters. and there's there's a whole slew of these guys, and they are characters.
2: Yeah, and uh, you know, different cities have different capacities for for cool venues. Montreal was great because they had all these commercial and industrial sectors where no one lived. So after 7 p.m., they were just deserted, uh, and you know, you could go in and offer a dance studio thousand bucks for one night's use of their venue, and I can see how that would seem like a very good deal for the owner, or e- even even better deal for whoever, whatever lowly employee happens to own a key to the place. And that's kind of what they they mentioned for that airport hangar party. Is they suspected that you know, it obviously what. Wasn't the person who actually had the ability, the the legal right to let you in there? Because who would let ravers come in and dance around all of these, you know, multi-million dollar planes? So it's usually, you know, somebody who's uh, high enough on drugs or plur to think they can get away with <laughs> renting it out to some promoters for a couple thousand bucks. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I feel like that doesn't happen as much anymore as it, as it used to, just because, you know, everything is so much more illegal now. Like people know that they'll end up in the system if they do something like that. And that's scary enough to stop it. But, you know, at this time, it was just like, who cares? Let's do it.
0: Yeah, there was a bit more freedom in the air back then. And and so he goes down and lists some of the promoters, some of these characters like Taddy Kev, uh, who's a DJ promoter. Who's going to go on to produce like *Flying and Lotus* and all kinds of stuff? He's a, a pretty well-known guy uh, in the 21st century, but he works for Double Hit Mickey, which is one of the biggest LA crews. They're younger than previous promoters. Their scene tended to be 21 and under, as opposed to the previous scene in that LA chapter we talked about before, that tended to be a 21 and over crowd. This drew a lot of Orange County kids, and this is a consistent dynamic in LA pop music phenomenon when things tend to start in LA or Hollywood and then go out to Orange County classically in the punk scene, you know, you had the X and the germs and all that in Hollywood in the late seventies in no time at all. You've got a uh, black flag and bad religion and the adolescence and, all that kind of stuff coming out of Orange County and other suburban counties. Uh, I think Black Flag was Huntington Beach. But anyway, same same general idea. The uh, double-hit Mickey was named for a type of LSD uh, that had a picture of Mickey Mouse with a tab on his tongue, a little piece of paper, acid, and they, they were using logo bites, which is what Rick Klotz, who's a graphic designer at a company called Fresh Jive, and he was always stealing corporate symbols for flyers. Uh, also, something you could get in a lot of trouble for. Um,
2: but at the time, was- it felt like it's still subversive, but I don't think copyright was quite as established at that point where it actually felt like it was like lawsuits that could come down on these kids. Obviously, now things have, have changed quite a bit. Uh, you know, you can't even have an Elvis themed wedding anymore in, in Las Vegas because, uh, you know, copyright is ruining everything. But back then, you know, the reappropriation of corporate culture and turning it into rave was subversive and fun. And, uh, it let us take like a spin on corporate culture when corporate culture wasn't quite the monolithic evil entity that it was, that it is now. It was, it was cool to like, you know, take, uh, the Coca-Cola logo and change it into a, a rave flyer and you know, I, I, I think like maybe five out of the 30 parties I threw had some kind of like complete ripoff. We ripped off Star Wars and threw Rave Wars. You know, it was all, half of it's lazy, but, you know, the other half is like fun uh, remix culture.
0: Indeed, and it was analog and it wasn't online. So, you know, you're handing out flyers or T-shirts or whatever. That's not going to be instantly searchable by some, you know, corporate algorithm looking to um, extract a dime from you. Um, and so you had other characters like uh, Mr. Kool-Aid who, uh, quote, could not mix records to save his life, say some of his friends and colleagues. He was known for his great email list. He partnered with this guy, Gary Richards, a.k.a. DJ Destructo, which DJ Destructo apparently also refers to his less than smooth style on the turntables. Um Gary Richards, though, had a Sunday after-hour show called The Sermon that was started to draw about 500 people a week. Then he expanded up to Midnight Mass, which was a Saturday night event. And one of his key creeds was that the venue is more important than the talent. And um, the – Team Kool Aid and Destructo—they did a weekly, a monthly event for two years. So, yeah, you know, and they and they name them all like Double Up Mickey, Magical Mickey's Electric Daisy Carnival, which I assume they're linked now to the people that
2: do the Electric Daisy Carnival, the big, big yeah. Thing. Well, Mr. Kool Aid is uh, Stephen Hopfer. And uh, he threw the, like, he was behind the, the original Electric Daisy Carnival. And then Pascal Rotella, who is also, you know, used in this chapter a lot, as a, as a person who kind of gives you that firsthand explanation for what's going on, he would end up becoming uh, Insomniac Events. And he bought the, the name off of uh, Mr. Kool-Aid.
0: I see. So it all, it all connects. And they also had Magical Mickey's Mind Arcade. So they had this kind of theme that went with the double hit Mickey brand and Athos. But let's go ahead and hear our first track. This is Spice by Eon from nineteen ninety one. Was Eon's "Spice" from 1991. Why'd you pick this one?
2: You know, later on in the chapter, they talk a lot about Mars FM and the music that was playing on Mars FM, and this this was one of the tracks that uh, they were talking about. And it gives you kind of an idea for for the place where where the techno was at the time, or like the hardcore uh, sound was, and the music that was kind of popular then. So I felt like it was a good kind of introduction to the to to where things were production-wise and perfectly fitting and i
0: think to keep in mind like we talked about both in the brewster and broughton book and in the simon reynolds techno roll series is this is the same period when england is having its big big rush of rave tunes on the pop charts uh possibly the all-time peak of electronic dance music i mean kind of before it just became ubiquitous in england so there's there's tons of stuff going on and it's mainly being driven by england and uh europe and some of the other characters uh that they've got promoting shows one of them's David michaels aka the mad hatter he was uh involved in a party called lsd cleverly love sex and dance which is a major early party he rented out his list as well um and then went legal around this time, and so he added his his top hat. He came across a top hat on a trip to New York, and he started wearing tails with that, like top hat and tails, Fred Astaire style. And some of his shows were under the Paw Paw Patch, which was at Union Station in down, downtown LA. And again, that's the kind of thing that you could only do for a little while before rave got so stigmatized that some venue like Union Station wouldn't have anything to do with it. He booked DJs Doc Martin, Frankie Bones, and Adam X for that. So um, I guess Doc Martin was based in L.A. by this point, originally from San Francisco. Frankie Bones coming out from the East Coast, staying with Adam X. Um, And somebody's memory of this event was it was darkness and music and people and cat in the hat hats and Mickey Mouse gloves. The cat in the hat hats were an unfortunate dork fashion trend around this time that was inescapable.
2: Yeah. I mean, even even at the time, it's not something, you know, looking back and we realize that it's a bit cringy. But even at the time, I remember, you know, it was
0: who is that idiot in the cat in the hat hat. I mean, it was.
2: And, and to a certain degree, I wish I could let myself let go enough to wear a cat in the, the hat hat. You know, it's one of those things where it's like 50 percent like derision and 50 percent kind of envy that these people are, are willing to to just get so completely nutted wearing a cat in the hat hat. And I frequently always had shirtless. A, a bit of. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. They were fully in and they didn't really care about how ridiculous they looked.
0: No, no, it was definitely all about the freedom. Uh, He also put on the Paw Paw Ranch show in June 1991. Uh, This was out in the desert. And this is one of multiple shows out in the desert where they sort of tricked attendees with multiple map points. You'd get a flyer would say to go here to find out more information. You'd go to one place and then say, go someplace else, go to a third place. They were even giving away gasoline at like, I guess the second to last map point, because it'd been such a long trek, and they had a DJ set up at the gas station. So that's pretty classic. I would, that, that was a true era of adventure and not knowing what the hell is happening that, um, it's just lost in the commercial rave modern
2: world. Yeah. I think we've touched on this in the past where, uh, where it's just nowadays it's hard to throw a party outside of the downtown core because nobody'll nobody's willing to to make the effort and back then people were you know not even too upset about having to drive 2 hours especially if they're being given gas halfway there you know so yep i
0: mean you know it was a clever workaround for an inability to get a good venue closer to downtown uh, another character they talk about this guy Gary Blitz and he partners with Mad Hatter and Kool-Aid, and they promote Magical Mickey's holy underwater adventure in June of 1991. That was originally planned for the Monsoon Lagoon in Redondo Beach, but the venue got one to the, quote, events nature and returned their deposit. So they uh, booked on the Tuesday before a Saturday event, they booked Wild Rivers in Irvine. And that, that's – sorry, my bad. That's the one where they gave away free uh, guests uh, at one of the map points and had the DJ at the gas station. So yeah, you had to improvise. You had to make do think. On and your these, feet.
2: these promoters would, uh, you know, when they, when you talk to a venue owner, you obviously don't use the word rave. Usually you say it's a, it's an all ages, all night fundraiser with no alcohol. And that sounds pretty good. And then, you know, hopefully they won't figure it's like out. It's a church lock in Yeah, pretty much. It sounds, you can, you can make it sound really innocent. I made my, my rave promotion company sound so innocent that the Canadian government sent me about 5,000 bucks because I was like, oh, you know, it's like to help the youth, And it's to keep them out of trouble, and there's no alcohol, and you know, that's that's like a key point. You don't mention anything about the drugs, obviously. Well, obviously,
0: I mean, that's uh,
2: unrelated. Yeah. And this is also the era of co-promotion because so many of these promoters are just teenagers or young adults hustling, you know, no proper jobs. Uh, You had to bring together crews to put together the capital that you need for these larger events. And one crew might, you know, the way that you put it together is one crew might have the UK headliner hookups. And then another is, is a guy who works at a sound and light company and get you a deal. And then there's the guy who knows the real estate agent who has the keys to a bunch of places. You know, Mr. Kool-Aid was brought in all the time because he had his mailing list, and he just had this natural ability to to be able to connect with the scene and and bring people. So it wasn't unusual to see like three or four production company names throwing a single party. And the numbers
0: that are drawing, you know, like uh, the Wild Rivers event in Irvine, that drew two thousand people. And you know, for comparison. Black Flag in 1981 drew like 3,000 people to a theater in downtown LA, and that was the apex of the legendary California, Southern California hardcore punk scene. So um, they're pulling an audience at these things, and, and it is – I think the whole thrust of Matos' book is why did it take so long for this stuff to become mainstream when it was from the beginning – moving you know units and bringing people in to buy tickets so um you know it's interesting to watch but he he gets into a lot of that and one of the factors that sort of inhibited the growth of rave in la was the uh cultural differences and and so he talks about the latin underground on the east side which was um playing a lot of electronic dance music having a lot of parties but it's very different than anything going on in the la rave scene it was never 100% techno or house. Um, and there were some interesting subscenes. I, I would like to hear more of this stuff. I didn't see anything from the Latin Underground and the mixography, although correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but, like, there was a crew called the Rebels who were in the Hard House, which was uh, a subset of House in England uh, that was kind of resisting... I don't know. Explain hard house and how it relates to hardcore and and Gabba and other
2: developments around this time. Uh, I mean, it was kind of uh, a continuation of uh, of high energy from from gay clubs is uh, is there. There was a really upbeat kind of hard, uh, hard driving four four sound that was being played in the gay clubs. And it kind of got uh, an element of trance to it and an element of uh, like hardcore Gabba to it. So it was going up to about one hundred and forty beats per minute. Uh, and uh, like it's, I should have included a, a Hard House track in uh, this episode. Uh, it was just that one mention of of them in there, but it's uh, it's kind of uh, House's answer to hardcore music because it was faster, but it still had a lot of. A lot of rhythm to it and stuff like that so I, I'm a big fan of hard house all the old tidy track stuff and uh, out of the UK I used to love it so it's it's cool to see it kind of getting a little bit of a name drop here because I know it never really picked up too much in North America
0: and uh, the abstract label was a particular favorite of the Rebel Crew, but they would also throw in things like the Stray Cats or Billy Idol, and no one would stop dancing. Uh, you know, there's a quote. You know, you'd hear everything from Hard House to Gaver, and boom, you'd hear a reggae song. These
2: people were not purists, but yeah, and it feels almost like that's that's the reason why maybe they weren't being taken as seriously by the hardcore ravers who said, you know, mainstream is coming in, it's ruining everything. I'm going to a rave, and I'm hearing. Uh, I'm hearing pop music or I'm hearing reggae and stuff like that. These people aren't real ravers.
0: Yeah. And also there was a cultural element where uh, the girls were on stage showing off their bodies. The Cholos were out there fighting. Um, and so there was definitely sort of a cultural difference and, and, and a rougher crowd, you know, more working class. Um, and But eventually popular rave DJs like Barry Weaver are starting to get booked um, by these crews and the crowds start mixing Unfortunately, the cholo's kind of feast on some of the suburban ravers, and uh, you know it adds it adds to the badness of the scene. Yeah, this, there was um, a
2: specific quote from uh, from 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 Pascal Rotella where he basically said if you went out there and showed any individuality whatsoever, that made you a target for uh, for all of the gangsters there to to take advantage of you, and you see that a lot. Uh, in New York, the scene started to feast upon all of the candy kids and all the real plural believers, cause they would walk into everything naive and there were perfect marks for, for being taken advantage of. And, you know, in, it was a little bit more like in depth in New York. I feel like people would bring you in and then they'd scam you while well, here in, uh, in Los Angeles, you just, you looked weak. So they came up and they robbed you. Ouch. Yeah.
0: Not pretty, but let's hear our next tune. This is LA styles. James Brown is dead from 1991. And that was the Belgian group, L.A. style, ironically named, uh, doing their tune. James Brown is dead. Tell us about that one.
2: Yeah, I mean, the book uh, described it as a uh, a kind of a repudiation of breakbeats and rave music saying, you know, get off the breakbeats. Four, four is the future. Four to the floor. Let's uh, let's move forward with that. and Get a little bit more hardcore instead of straight hardcore gabber instead of hardcore breakbeat and again like uh it's just taking over this is the sound of rave it's taking over everywhere and it just pushed the club people more or the house people more into the clubs and pushed the rave kids more underground because that's the only place they could get it so you know a bit of a polarizing style of music that's that's what was going on at the time
0: yeah and that that tune actually uh, cracked the pop charts It made number 99 on the american uh, top 100 billboard top 100 so uh yeah, had a lot of impact and and was making a statement. Um, kind of fighting the tide, ultimately losing the jungle, but um, you know making a statement and and rallying the troops for an aesthetic vision. Uh, and after all the success from these kids, essentially doing these these wild and woolly illegal promoters, one of the big local promoters, Avalon Productions Promotions, gets gets in and quote rolls up to L.A. Raves. They they put on an 808 State show. Um, And that's one of the groups from Manchester, one of the true techno groups out of Manchester. But they were attempting to emulate the Hacienda feel, which is Hacienda's the legendary club in Manchester, the home of Madchester and and bands like the Happy Mondays uh, and and, uh, the Stone Roses, etc. They had DJ Destructo on the bill and had him as a co-promoter. He got the hookup. Because his dad was a local radio promoter and had connections to Tommy Boy Records, which uh, was connected to 808 State in the States. So, yeah, anytime you start doing something successful at the grassroots level, the big money's going to sniff
2: around and get interested. Yeah. And of course, again, there's always that big divide between whether or not you want to support these uh, these more mainstream people that are coming in. And it's funny because, again, like you you see the same names. These guys are just kind of moving up the chain and getting involved more commercially with with some more stable, uh, stable people. And then because it gets to that level, all of a sudden the ravers think it's not, you know, underground enough. But you're getting 808 State. Uh, I read I read a review of that show that said Bjork apparently came out and performed a song with them. Citation needed. Need to double check that one.
0: Yeah, for sure. But that's interesting. If it did Bjork of the Sugar Cubes, I guess she had gone solo right around this time um, and was was quite the big thing in the underground rock scene Um, and, and was rave adjacent. I think her first album was pretty much EDM, right?
2: yeah and then uh, i think uh the the was it debut uh was produced by one of the guys who was uh in massive attack so yes
0: that is correct and meanwhile uh we started getting a lot of national media attention to the scene particularly in la legs mcneil famous punk author um co-author of please kill me the oral history of punk in new york which hadn't come out yet uh so he's and also the creator of the punk fan scene back in the seventies. But at this point he's writing for details magazine and uh, tagged along uh, on one of these rays, I think the one of the gas station um, in the desert. And that, that feature runs in the December, 1991 issue that gets a lot of attention nationally in November, 1991, Beverly Hills, 90210 of all things runs a uh, euphoria euphoria episode. Euphoria was the, the title. Uh, the characters are, Um, warned away from a drug called euphoria that uh that the the bad guys are, are handing out but the characters go to a rave so again getting a lot of attention drawing the interest of of newbies who are exposed to this for the first time but also immediately attracts that backlash and how cool can this be if it's on 90210
2: yeah, you had that that uh, the the pincer the pincer of of one side of the scene saying this is this is too mainstream, this isn't cool anymore. We got to find the new cool thing, and then you got the other pincer of uh, like a, a big backlash from from parents and government officials and police officers who are realizing this thing is going on, and they need to do something about it. Won't somebody think of the children?
0: Yes, it's a classic moral panic. We talked about this a lot in the Reynolds and Brewster Brown books about what happened in England, where you know laws are passed and they really crack down on raves, illegal raves out in the country, and and you know force everything to be professionalized and and commodified. And there's a whole slew of what Matos calls Gen X think pieces, because this was the sort of first emergence of Gen- Generation X as young adults. Um, this is happening at the same time as Nirvana is exploding as the golden age of hip hop. So, uh, Gen X for a brief time is culturally significant. And so, you know, you get things like uh, the San Francisco Examiner doing a big piece on, on raves in February of 92. Uh, Newsweek runs what Matos calls a Scare the Parents classic in April of 92. Wall Street Journal. Uh, Inside Edition in 48 Hours, the TV news magazine. So you know they're doing quality thoughtful uh, stuff there. Um, yeah. So it creates the moral panic. and um, But it's not as big as it is in England. So the moral panic is less uh, spectacular. But it's an undercurrent. I think gangster rap was getting most of the heat around
2: this period period. Yeah, that's definitely they hadn't they didn't know enough and they were you know they rave was overshadowed by the racism towards rap so we kind of got off a little bit early but you know the rave reputation was going up and down like Ratella in this chapter he talks about how in 1988 everybody was really into it excited about getting dressed up and going out and jumping through whatever hoops they had to to get to this party but my 1992 they were burned out on being you know tricked into driving two hours into the desert for a party that the cops probably would shut down and maybe. have having one of their friends OD and nearly die and maybe someone they know also getting robbed. So add in the societal pressures, these events are getting painted as druggy affairs and it takes a a really dedicated person to stick around and be an advocate for rave. And this
0: is something that Matos doesn't get into that Reynolds got into a lot is also the whole cycle, the serotonin cycle of these drugs. And if you do a lot of ecstasy MDMA over time, the effects change, they get, it's less euphoric and, uh, you pay a big price in depression and exhaustion um, for consuming your serotonin and other endorphins um, with with the drug use. So yeah, it all it all feeds it all feeds into into this kind of burn and churn where the crowd has to turn over for the scene to keep growing. And I. I the thing about the moral panic media coverage is it does have the perverse effect of you know frightening parents and attracting kids so it did have a long-term impact of bringing a lot of people raising awareness so a lot of kids out in the sticks all over the country uh, got to hear about this stuff but then he says the actual coverage of the music on the scene was quote far thinner on the ground you had a couple of import magazines like mix mag and dj mag uh, coming from England. Matos is kind of dismissive of them. He says they mostly covered Clubhouse and the usual suspects like Danny Ramplin and Paul Oakenfold. And we haven't mentioned the famous trip to Ibiza yet this episode, but here it is. Those are the guys that went to Ibiza and discovered Rave and brought it back to England. Uh, but But the music... Focused those mags focused on clubhouse, um, which was we talked about last time, which is a, a subgenre of house music that quote had little traction on the U.S. rave scene.
2: Yeah, basically, the magazines had a the, the the quote from the book that I liked is it said it was a slightly inspirational tomes. So, like, yeah, and, and I remember looking through mixed mags Aspirish. and DJ mags, aspirational, there we go, like, and and seeing the names on all the flyers for all the club events and stuff because it, by that point they'd been pushed out of the fields and back into the clubs, so it was very much a club scene with still rave music but you see all these names and 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 it's kind of like you might not know what they sound like because it's not like you can download mp3s yet or or hear it online maybe maybe if you break out real player and you're willing to listen to a really low quality something or other but for the most part you're just seeing these names on flyers in the magazine and then you see that name on a flyer in america and you're like holy shit Like it's over here. We got to check this out without any real real knowledge yet at all. There was there was none of that. I don't think you could even file transfer songs
0: yet at this point. We're still in the era when you're trying to download a JPEG of a dirty picture and it's 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 displaying on your screen one line at a time. But let's take a quick break from our sponsors, and we come back. We'll talk about the zine scene that emerged to fill that vacuum. And so since there wasn't any uh, mainstream media covering the music, um, that leaves this opening for uh, zine makers. And zines were something before the Internet. I mean, people would literally type things up, chop them up, put them on a Xerox copier and make a little booklet, staple them together and uh, pass them out at record stores at, at raves, mail them to their friends. You know, people would collect and, and trade these zines. So you had uh, several out of New York. You had Brand X by DJ Money Penny. You had Under One Sky by Heather Hart. Uh, Detroit had Fast Forward by Alan Oldham uh minneapolis had the disco family plan by woody mcbride a dj we've talked about a number of times in this series Uh, la had the herb which was the first to seem even semi-professional that was founded by photographer raymond roker in december 1990 but pretty soon had jason bentley on as the managing editor he was also a radio host he hosted the metropolis radio show Uh, playing rave music at kcrw fm every night uh daddy daddy kev who i mentioned before kevin mu he was an intern there as a high school senior and it had loads of ads it was actually making money uh streetwear lines were advertising nightclubs were advertising events so uh, the zine scene was definitely punching above its weight as far as letting people know what's going on musically
2: yeah. Th- these things went kind of legit quicker. If not legit, then they were making money quick because if, uh, you know, you got to hook up with the printing press and you start selling ad space for upcoming raves and, uh, and also uh, fashion and stuff like that. Like this is a, this is the segment that all these companies are trying to reach and boom, you could be making like a glossy 20 page design and pocketing a good chunk of cash on top of your costs. So it wasn't uh, it was, it was kind of a golden age for that as far as, uh, the, those kinds of magazines go and you can dig some of these up online if you if you're digging around in google uh some of these things show up and you can get pdfs of the old uh of the old zines and they're they're a hoot i really like them yeah yeah it, it's
0: i think very important if you're trying to get a feel for the era to read what people are saying at the time and the way they talked about things but this is also a period of time when this music has started to get on the radio it has this brief uh Radio Beachhead in LA um, you have uh, Richard Humpty Vision had his Power Tools weekly program on Power 106 in LA but then a guy named Ken Roberts who uh, had formerly owned K-Rock which is this legendary alternative radio station in LA uh, Rodney down the Rock etc I mean this is where you know so many bands were broken in the US like New Order Billy Idol, R.E.M., U2 etc cetera, etc cetera, Black Flag uh, X, oh, yeah. violent Femmes. So many bands got played on K-Rock. The guy who owned it, Ken Roberts, he bought two stations, K- KDLD in Santa Monica and KDLE in Newport Beach, and he simulcast them. That means both of them were broadcasting the same thing so over a much bigger area. And it was called Mars. He hired DJ Freddie Snakeskin, who was a veteran K-Rock DJ. In fact, the guy who broke Dancing with Myself by Billy Idol and New, New Order's Blue Monday on American Radio, he wanted to play dance rock, but his program director, Swedish Egel Aglovic, who was the program director, he wanted techno. And they settled on a mix heavy on the Manchester bands. Again, Happy Monday, Stone Roses, Inspiral Carpets, that kind of stuff. The dancey side of Susie and the Banshees and uh, you know, New Order, Human League, that kind of stuff. Plus the uh, Native Tongues school of hip-hop, so things like De La Soul, Del the Funky, Homo Sapien, and a tiny little bit of Madonna. So pretty groundbreaking mix for the time.
2: Yeah. And I don't understand why it has to be this big, difficult uh, choice that, that, that this format has to do. It seems obvious to me that you play that during the day. And then as soon as it gets dark, you, you, you bust out the techno like it's uh, that's that's how it is on all of the, the weird uh, community and college radio stations around here. And that's how it should be.
0: Yep, and um, but it only lasted a little while. It got shut down by August on August nineteenth, nineteen ninety-two. They had the you know the dreaded meeting. Whenever the security, uh, whenever the st- station calls a, a all hands meeting and there's heavy security there, uh, that's a good clue. There's going to be a programming change. But <laughs> meanwhile, they're playing tracks like Spice uh, by Eon, like you said, Moby's Go, uh, L.A. Styles, James Brown is dead. This was what was driving that Belgian anti-breakbeat track. Gets all the way to 90, 99 on the charts. So big doings there for a minute.
2: Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, I think maybe one of the reasons why everything kind of like the radio dried up is that there started to be a bit of a backlash. 1993, uh, the cops come down hard on the scene. And we've talked about this before, like about how the aura of illegality and counterculture is what can make the scene thrive and drag drag people out. But sometimes that aura brings in the police. And if there's somebody competent in charge who's serious about shutting the scene down, they definitely can Like I I had to stop throwing raves in my city and move move things to Montreal because one police officer with a bug up her ass convinced was just convinced we were facilitating sex trafficking or something. And, you know, initially we moved our events out of Ottawa downtown to avoid her. But then the city amalgamated and you literally had to drive 45 minutes to get outside of city limits. And even then there were times, you know, we'd be in some bum town taking over their one bar and this cop would show up in an advisory capacity with the provincial police. So L.A. apparently had task forces and and they were they were dedicated to shutting these parties down and they knew how to cause the maximum amount of pain for these promoters. Like they wouldn't they, they obviously would know where these big parties would be, but they wouldn't shut them down in advance. They'd wait until everything was set up. And basically all the bills had to be paid, because if a party gets shut down before it starts, the promoter can walk away with all the money in his pocket and and not even worry about it. But you shut it down at 11 PM. And then all of a sudden the venue still has to be paid. The sound system still has to be paid. The DJs are already in town and hunting, hunting your ass down. Uh, it's a big nightmare. And, uh, you know, once the cop's figured that out and really started putting the screws on promoters, everything started getting, getting really rocky. And uh, again, people were getting burned out by the fact that it was this sketchy things. Things weren't happening. Uh, like people were getting robbed. The drugs weren't good anymore. So it, it's all just like a, a big rolling, big, big, big rock rolling downhill until the, the next kind of bump that comes along several years later.
0: Yeah, and the big thing that happens in LA around this time is the LA riots. Rodney King was uh, beaten by police, and they caught that on video. I think that was in the fall of '91. Uh, by uh, April, they had the trial for the police. They all get acquitted. Massive riots break out all over the city, particularly in the black neighborhoods. And you know, according to people that Montes quotes in the chapter, the city's on lockdown for nine months to a year. And the police then set up the anti-riot task force. And if you know who Daryl Gates was. The the cop's cop. I mean, this guy was just putting on um, a test case for American fascism, uh, this incredibly hostile occupying force, police force armed to the teeth, looking to oppress black people and Hispanics and punk rockers and and homosexuals. Anybody that was different or vulnerable or outside the mainstream, they would just come down on him and a ton of bricks ready to have the riot squad uh, out you know, at the drop of the hat, and that drives more and more of these parties out to the suburbs, onto Indian reservations. Meanwhile, the promoters are at war with each other. Um, and and there's, you know, he says by 1993, it was a wrap. There was nothing going on. And, and then there's a number of people talking the quotes in the chapter who – sort of blame the promoters. And I don't know if there's anything they could have done about this. They said that the dropping ages was the kiss of death, quote, you know, once you have teenagers showing up at parties, people in their 20s and 30s, not so cool with that. Also, teenagers tend to be have poor judgment and make a lot of bad decisions and and act like idiots. And, you know, and so, you know, somebody's quoted as saying you have to have some quality control, quality or crowd control or you lose everything. And the same Uh, is, quote, getting rinsed out.
2: That, That sounds like somebody who had their fun when they were 18. And now that they're 25, they don't want the 18 year olds around or anything like that. Uh, I remember when I got into rave, rave as a a definition, it it, it had to be somewhere weird. It couldn't be in a bar or club. It had to be all night and it had to be all ages. And if it wasn't, it wasn't really a rave. And uh, the all ages element to me seemed so important at the time. Uh, when I was 18 and now I look back and I'm a bit horrified by it because like, you know, seeing 16 year olds now as an old man, you kind of realize how, you know, we weren't fully formed and we had no idea what we were doing and we were kind of easy pickings for, for whatever was kind of happening at the time. But, you know, uh, again, this is, this is all in hindsight with my wisdom of of age, but you know, when I was 18, it seemed perfectly legit and fine and let those kids have fun. So it's uh, you know, I see both sides of it.
0: And here's our next track.
2: This is The Black
0: Sheep. The choice is yours from
1: 1991. Uh-huh. Then
2: of course, the choice is yours. You can get with this or you can
1: get with that.
0: And that was the black sheep. The choice is yours from 1991. And Ryan, that wasn't techno. That was hip hop. What's the story?
2: Well, Rave America, which is what we're about to dig into now, was a massive 30,000 person rave. And uh, these guys actually were the headliners. So once again, we're touching in on that that element of L.A. rave where or L.A. all night dance parties where they would have. Things other than rave going on, so uh, these guys were billed as the headliners above other groups like Messiah that that were also in in town, you know, coming over from the UK for it. So it just goes to show you how there there was a there there was it was was still a formative time, and it wasn't locked down, and you could only have techno acts, which is kind of cool in a way, but also again, you know, problematic if you've got crowds mixing that that don't mix so well.
0: Yeah, and it just goes to show how. In flux, everything was musically where you know hip hop and techno in house are cousins, as we discussed in Brewster and Broughton. These are the first DJ driven musics to become popular in the US, and they grew up together and not always the friendliest of cousins as things develop. But yeah, let's talk about this Rave America party. So, Gary Richards um, decides, uh, you know, I'm going to get out, and the way the, the scene is done, and the way to do it is. A mega sold out event like he puts pedal to metal, does it all. New Year's Eve, Knott's Berry Farm, which is a huge uh, amusement park uh, in the L.A. area, had multiple promoters. He tried to get everybody on board to prevent the promoter, the rival promoters that were excluded from calling the police on him. Um, he had the DJs who played the Eastside Gangster events, had seven stages with 37 listed acts, four hosts, had Black Sheep headline, like I said. Uh, Joey Beltram came out from New York to DJ Kiyoki, uh the DJ from the Limelight Club in Manhattan, came out. Uh, the Belgian act Messiah came out, um, which their track Temple of Dreams had been a big hit on Mars FM, sold out in advance, 18,000 tickets sold. But another 20,000 kids tried to sneak in. So it turns into just this total mayhem exhibition. The park turns off the power at midnight for an hour to try to regain control. Just a madhouse. And there is one other promotion going on that night. What, question mark, uh, was the, quote, cool alternative? Was there any point in trying to keep it underground at this point? Or, I mean, what's the deal here?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's just that kind of snobbery that comes with being in a scene for a long time and seeing it kind of change. And all of a sudden, you're no longer in, you're kind of out. And on one hand, you're fine with it, because... You know, screw the mainstream, anyways. But on the other hand, you're at these smaller parties that are getting crushed by these bigger parties. It's a, it's a, it's a very weird feeling when the when the torch gets gets passed and you get left behind. So you know, uh, I think any of the handwringing about what was going on at this rave America party, obviously it was a massive event, and uh, I guess you'd have to go back and ask the people whether or not they felt like it was worth it when the party semi got shut down at midnight. But uh, it sounds pretty, pretty legit rave to me. I mean, the, the only rave at an amusement park I ever went to, there was so much vomit. And that was just a sign of the great time everybody was having.
0: <laughs> Isn't that the way? Isn't that the way? And yeah, he talks about, uh, he gets a lot of quotes from this guy, Pasquale Rotelli, you mentioned, who had an interesting bio. He came out of the Eastside Latin Pride crew, goes to his first rave at age 15 in 1989. Then in 92, he spends a month in London where he goes to the Rage Club, and here's Fabio and Groove Rider. Here's Hardcore, the hardcore sound that's emerging pre-Jungle. But by the time he gets back, Rave is no longer cool. And he talks, you know, the promoters are calling cops on each other. Uh, The Magical Mickey's Haunted Mansion on October 26, 1991, was shut down by the cops, like you mentioned. So, yeah, it's like uh, Rotella is kind of Matos' vehicle for – telling the whole story of rave in la in one character and it's interesting how this dynamic of boy this is cool ugh i'm burned out on this crap uh happens seemingly over and over again
2: yeah, and it's interesting how they don't mention the fact that Rotello is is the head of Insomniac now and kind of uh, one of, one of the biggest promoters of rave in in North America. So it's it seems like at this point in time he's talking about how how it's ruinous how it's gone mainstream. And uh, you know I don't want to discount what he's saying because the truth of the matter is like I, you can see it in in any scene. Sometimes sometimes things are kind of blowing up in a good way, and sometimes they're blowing up in a way where you're like, okay, this isn't good. Uh, obviously. Uh, the chapter was talking about a lot of kids being taken advantage of, beaten up, robbed, uh, gunshots going off, and stuff like that. Things, you know, seeming to get out of control and dangerous. And there's like a point in several scenes. Like when I was in Chicago, I kind of came in at the tail end of of my friends kind of scene and they told me about how it used to be one thing and then it was another so you kind of see this explosion of interest but all of a sudden the community goes out the window and that's where you know you suddenly have you know people being dumped out of cars and fields and left to die of exposure because they happened to overdose with people who couldn't handle it and stuff like that and and that brings in the cops and that brings in negative attention and all of a sudden you have the scene get cracked down upon so I can totally see where he's coming from It might it's not not just a snobbery thing. There is really a wrong way for things to get successful. Yeah, that, yeah. That seems to be maybe what happened.
0: It, it seems like it, but there's a. a... As Matos is want to do he he threads in some foreshadowing for the next chapter. One of the attendees at uh, the Rave America show was Rick Rubin of Def uh, Def Jam and then Def America and then American Records, who's you know already this legendary hip hop producer produced LL Cool J, Run DMC, the Beastie Boys. Um, executive produced public enemy signed public enemy uh, and then goes on to have this heavy metal period with Danzig and Slayer uh, gets back into hip hop with the ghetto boys um, produces the red hot chili peppers. So this guy is as big and mainstream, but cutting edge at the same time as anybody in American music. And he's there and he ends up hiring Gary Richards to do techno and R for a record label he's planning. And it's, you know it's i mean rick rubin you can't question the guy's instincts or his timing and we'll talk more about why um he didn't his label didn't make it but let's hear our next song next chapter but let's hear our next song before we wrap this is messiah's temple of dreams Messiah's Temple of
2: Dreams. Why'd you pick this one? You know, it has a special place in my heart because around 1 a.m. in the morning, the the Canadian music video channel, uh, Much Music, used to have their their one show dedicated to electronic music. And I saw the music video for for this song uh, at the time as I was like 12 years old and it blew my mind and it really kind of stuck in my head. So when I started hearing this kind of music online on the Internet, I'm like, oh, God, I found it again. This is amazing. But it also shows up in the chapter. Messiah was another group that was there at that Rave America party and they actually had rick rubin kind of saying these guys these guys might have something they might be worth signing
0: yeah and and you can hear what i think he was picking up on which was this is essentially hard rock or it punches a lot of the same buttons as hard rock it's got that big uh, mid-range sound and and a heavy vibe and you can see where somebody like rick rubin who's you know with somebody like that who produced everything from Johnny Cash to LL Cool J, you're like, what is the consistent thread here? Is this guy just schizophrenic or what? But it's intensity and extremism that Rick Rubin is drawn to. He's looking for the most extreme examples of every genre and the most extreme genres. So you can definitely see why it attracted him. Um, and we'll talk about next chapter why that didn't work out. And it's it's definitely one of the big. What ifs to me in techno history is, is, you know, Rick Rubin had a chance to sign the Prodigy and didn't. And if anybody was going to break, you know, later on, five years down the road, Prodigy plays a big role in almost breaking what they called electronica at the time big in the States. But I don't know. Do you think there's any scenario in which rave music could have broken through to the mainstream in the early 90s in the States?
2: It, it It's hard to say because we see all these opportunities that it did had, where it just didn't catch on or pan out. I, I really do think, that societally, it was murdered several times in America. You kind of see uh, a similar story and whether or not it was murdered by the ravers who were doing too many drugs and just, uh, and just kind of burned themselves out or, or you know, or the scenes got too sketchy and, and drove away uh, a lot of people or if it was murdered by the cops and the politicians who really like, you know, any time a scene started to get going, they would step in and ruin it. There's a number of, of, of kind of potential reasons why it all fell apart. But, you know, even when the prodigy did kind of get signed to a big label and brought out they had a massive quote-unquote massive hit as far as the music labels were concerned that was just middling success this is you know something that uh you know r&b and hip-hop like there's like hundreds and hundreds of these guys pumping out albums that are going like platinum and doing these kinds of numbers that the prodigy did as this one standout act that's supposed to you know get electronica rolling in north america
0: yeah another thing is America's a big country. I mean and and you can kind of tell from the way this book is structured so far we've spent a lot of time on both coasts and a little time in the upper midwest. But um so far you know we're not hearing a lot about the south or Texas or you know uh, the mountain west that kind of stuff so there's a lot of nothing in the middle of the United States that takes a long time to Catch on to new trends. It's not like England, where it's a relatively small country with one massive city that dominates things, such that you can have a pretty small scene in London. If it gets the right mix of media attention and radio play and TV exposure, it can blanket the whole country in a matter of weeks. You cannot do that in the States, even with MTV uh, at its apex in the 90s, you know, creating what they called a monoculture etc. And in in the States, it still took months for acts and and especially new genres, not months, years for new genres to break through. I mean, just look at hip hop. First hip hop record comes out in 1979. And it's not until the late 80s that you have mainstream stadium packing artists like Run DMC and the Beastie Boys come out of the scene. So it just it takes a long time to move the States. And also, I think the bit about radio is very telling and and you know, radio is still kind of hanging on as an important force but back in the 90s this was along with MTV which not everybody had MTV was only on cable it wasn't in every market not everybody had cable radio was the way most people heard music for the first time and you've got one station in LA that has a few month run with heavy techno in their their set list so that's not happening in say Amarillo Texas or Nashville Tennessee that's just happening in LA and um, meanwhile hip hip-hop is breaking into radio across the country for the first time and i think in england techno did not have to compete with hip-hop to the same extent hip-hop was sort of tucked under the electronic music um, umbrella in a way that it was not in the states and we've talked about that on previous episodes
2: yeah, and you had that underground radio scene where you had a bunch of people pushing out the music that they liked. So it wasn't a monoculture like it is in, in in America to a degree where there's a choice, there's a format, and they stick to it. And if if that's not what you're into, then you're out of luck. So there was uh, there was always more more getting pushed. And uh, there was more room for these smaller genres to kind of sit there and let people come to them. While while in America, if you weren't moving units, you weren't worth anything. If you weren't worth anything to them, you weren't getting on the radio. And if you aren't getting on the radio, you're not being heard by, you know, everybody outside the downtown cores. And I just don't think that rave music can it, it, is, is great to listen to. Uh, don't get me wrong, but I think there's something ultimately unsatisfying. Uh, if If you're not able to get out there and experience it on a big sound system, so maybe that kind of plays another part into it as well for everybody who's not in a in a city that happens to have a place where you can hear this stuff.
0: yeah, and also a lot of uh, people were looking for music on the radio to fit formats they knew before. Amatos talks about this, like instead of appreciating the way the track would build to a big drop or something like that, they would be going, where's the chorus? Or I'm not hearing a song here. They had certain expectations and they would, you know, have a set and play maybe 15, three minute, six minute tracks and listeners would come back. Uh, was that just one long song? Like did not get the whole ethos. And, and even though disco had been briefly... Massively popular in America in the late 70s and early 80s, the DJ ethos had not really permeated the whole country. And you also had college radio, which was kind of the alternative, you know, the the left of the dial, low power signals, public radio and college radio that pushed a lot of new music. But even there. Hip hop was a big factor on college radio, and much bigger was um, grunge and alternative metal, and what would become indie—what we would now think of as indie. So it was it was very hard for for techno to get a look in and break in. Any final thoughts in this chapter? Are
2: we about to wrap? I just think it was a lot of fun. It's like the chaos that was that was kind of captured of like the all the competing all the competing promotions, you know, either fighting against each other or working together. And at the end of that big party with forty thousand people at rave america the promoter walking away with not a dime to his name that resonates with me because it feels (laughs) like it feels like things that i did on a smaller scale
0: yeah and that and that kind of tells you when you know promoter puts on the biggest show of the genre maybe ever in the nation up to that point and walks away with nothing that's not gonna um you know, you don't build on that. So uh, that's it for our chapter on Rave America. Next time we'll be back and we'll be discussing the See the Light Tour, which hit 13 North American cities in October and November of 1993. And so this is kind of going to be the first run at breaking electronic dance music big in the States in the conventional music business. So for Ryan Harkness, I'm Nate Wilcox, and we've been discussing Michelangelo Matos's The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America.
1: Keeping your feet warm, dry, and comfortable is top priority with people from all walks of life. Boldfoot.com features 100% American-made socks with a wide array of styles, so even the most discerning sock connoisseur can find their perfect pair. Nate wears Boldfoot socks on his tiny little feet when recording because they keep his toesies cozy. The best part is, that 5% of all proceeds are donated to charities for veterans. Boldfoot.com, grown here, sown here. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Ryan and Nate join Matos on the 1993 See the Light Tour featuring Moby, Orbital, and Aphex Twin. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com.